The Accounting Matters Podcast lives up to its name. Every other week, we bring you a new episode where we cover vital accounting topics that actually matter to accounting professionals. Each episode, we introduce a new topic and then highlight and discuss the key areas. And we hope you stick around for all things accounting from A to Z. Coming to you from the heart of Texas, this is Accounting Matters, the go-to podcast for accounting and finance professionals from your friends here at Embark. Thanks for joining us, y'all. Once again, I'm Nicole Harger, Embark's National Quality Managing Director, and I'm joined by Adam Olson, my co-host, um, Embark's <laughs> advisor, accounting advisory practice leader. It's okay. I go by lots of times. I know here. you do. And so what are we talking about today? I know who you are. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> I think our listeners do too at this point. Okay, so what are we talking about today? That's a great question. CSRD's double materiality. It is. So we've we've talked about the CSRD in a number of episodes, and then we even did a deep dive into the kind of ESRS, so the European Sustainability Reporting Standards, um, which you know a lot of companies are now starting to kind of tackle their CSRD readiness. Um, there's companies that are already kind of pulled into the fold, kind of the early wave of reporting is starting. And then, you know, like we've, we've talked about in past episodes, that'll, there's a phase and approach for more entities that are pulled into the scope there. Uh, but what we are seeing are, is a lot of companies that are thinking through the application and requirements of CSRD, um, you know, first navigating, are they pulled into scope, you know, which, what's going to be maybe the reporting strategy around how they comply with the, the directive itself. Uh, but then the next natural step is around materiality and having to assess materiality in line with how the CSRD and the ESRS has outlined that. So that that is a, a phase that we are having a lot of conversations with clients around um, today. So I think it's a, it's very topical that I think we're going to talk about that at length today because it is very new to a lot of people. Including myself. Yeah. So all hopefully right. you learned something as well. Yeah. All right. Okay. So let's kick the conversation off today. Okay. Um, starting just reiterating like why the concept of materiality is so important as it relates to sustainability reporting. Yeah. And I think the way to think about it is just like, especially probably for most listeners on this podcast that probably have a traditional like finance accounting reporting background, like we all are familiar with the concept of materiality just from other corporate rec- reporting. So, so is double materiality, you just double that number? <laughs> <laughs> no, not quite, not quite. And we'll get into that more. And I wish it were maybe that, that simple, simple, but I think it's also a good reason it's it's not that simple. Um, but materiality in general, right? It helps companies really kind of identify what are the most important issues for them to report on and provides those stakeholders with more meaningful and relevant information. And so, you know, the concept of materiality is based on the idea that not all matters, not all issues, not all topics or transactions are equally important. And companies really can focus their efforts on what is material to their business and what matters to their stakeholders. And so through the financial materiality lens we're all familiar with, it's obviously a lot of times just thinking through that through the eyes of uh, lenders and investors and things like that. But um, as we'll talk about today, uh, we're kind of opening up that stakeholder group and then the complexities that come with a kind of evolving the traditional uh, concept of materiality as most finance professionals know it as uh, with the double materiality. Okay. So with that out of the way, the CSRD requires companies to utilize a double materiality approach to their reporting 
which is discussed in the ESRS. Mm -hmm. How do those reporting standards define the concept of double materiality? Yeah, so the ESRSs, uh, they require that the sustainability statements, so your kind of your sustainability report that you'll be putting forth, uh, includes sustainability information related to material impacts, risks, and opportunities um, that are identified through a materiality assessment that applies that principle of double materiality. And so double materiality is not just doubling your financial <laughs> materiality. It's actually there's two dimensions that you have to think about it. So there is a financial materiality um, dimension, which we'll talk a bit how that how that functions under the the directive. But then there's also this concept of an impact materiality. So it's it's thinking about it not just from you know the outside in, but also the inside out. And so a sustainability matter can be material to a reporting entity, um, either from an impact perspective, or it could also be from a financial perspective, or it could be both. Um, okay. So there's a number of different ways that you could have sustainability matters become material okay. um, and require reporting on. All right. So let's dig into those just a little bit, okay. specifically the impacts versus financial. So how should companies think about each of these differently? Yeah. So I think the best way is maybe just give the definition because they are defined in the ESRSs um, specifically to those two types of dimensions. So the ESRSs basically outline that a sustainability matter is material from an impact perspective when it pertains to the reporting entities, material, actual or potential positive or negative impacts on people or the environment over the short, medium or long term. Uh, and those impacts include those connected within the reporting entity's own operations, but they also include things in their upstream and downstream value chain. So this can be through their products and services, as well as their business relationships that they have. So you think about suppliers and vendors and customers and things like that. Uh, I'm it's already overwhelmed. <laughs> Don't worry, we'll, 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 we'll try to break it down a bit more. But from a financial perspective... Uh, sustainability matters can be material if it triggers or could reasonably be expected to trigger material financial effects on the reporting entity. Um, and so this is generally the case when that sustainability matter generates risks or opportunities that have a material uh, influence or could reasonably be expected to have a material influence on the reporting entity's own development, their financial position, financial performance, cash flows, access to capital, things like that, that all relate to um capital allocation or um, financial performance over the short, medium and long term as well. Um, so there's there's a number of different things that you, you know, kind of distinguish between the two there. And so, like I said, I think for sustainability professionals that are very familiar with maybe evaluating impact perspective, that makes more sense to them than maybe from the financial perspective, the traditional uh, office of the CFO, finance professionals, like maybe we can relate to that more, but you actually have to think about it through both dimensions. So I imagine the concept of impact versus financial materiality may find companies seeing each of those intertwined a little bit. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, I think it's very common to have certain sustainability matters that are um, intertwined between both impact and financial, you know, and, and I think one thing you got to kind of keep in mind is that the main purpose of even doing this materiality assessment is really to identify what are those material matters to be disclosed upon in your their sustainability statement mm -hmm. um, and really like 
your starting point for then trying to build out reporting processes and data collection and figuring out how to actually start preparing this report and getting and getting ready for assurance over that report, it, it really starts with like the conclusions you get from the materiality assessment. That's okay. going to be kind of your guiding light into like what you need to be focusing on and what you need to be building robust processes, controls, um, you know, use of technology, et cetera, to help, you know, facilitate that reporting strategy. So do the ESRSs provide any specific thresholds to be used as part of the materiality assessment? They don't. So I think similar to other materiality that we see, uh, you know, as you think about just traditional financial reporting, the process of identifying what are material matters and material information is going to require judgment, right? Yep. Um, It's very common in financial reporting, and it's going to be obviously a, a, a key component of sustainability reporting as well. So really what they're saying is that entities, they do need to set their own kind of thresholds or develop their own thresholds. Uh, but they really need to be thinking about their own facts and circumstances when they try to develop what those are. They're not prescribed. Um, so there is going to be a need to exercise that judgment, like I said. And that exercise of judgment is going to be much more significant, you know, especially when you've got, you know, a particular impact risk or opportunity and the information or evidence around that maybe is not as conclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, then you're going to have to really kind of lean into your judgment and, and, and provide some transparency around some of those judgments that you made. Um, so just to maybe give a little more clarity in what that potentially could mean. So if we think about impact materiality and kind of doing that exercise, so the ESRS is clarify that, you know, impact materiality, you're looking at a number of different things. You're looking at, you know, actual and negative impacts, but that could, you could also have positive impacts. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the concept of like potential impacts, right? Yep. Like some stuff's known, some's not known, but it could potentially happen. Some's positive, some's negative. And so the way you think about materiality through each of those different types of impacts is a little bit different. So for actual and negative impacts, materiality is based on the severity of the impact. And what we mean by that is there's typically three characteristics that you think through, although you don't have to necessarily think through all three of them. And those characteristics are around the scale of the impact. So how grave is that impact? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, thinking about the implications of that impact from a scale perspective the next is scope how widespread could that impact be um you know if it's you know affecting numerous individuals versus very small group of people or a a large environmental impact or damage versus a very isolated one you know that might impact um, the materiality of an actual negative impact and then the last one is around irremediable character so just the extent to which that impact could be remediated um, or restored or whatever, just is there the ability to, to do that? So it's thinking through those characteristics, which I know for a lot of accounting and finance people, it seems very abstract mm-hmm. and very qualitative in nature, but uh, those are kind of the the characteristics you would go through. And then from a positive impact, so we just talked about actual negative impacts, but there's also positive impacts you got to think about. That is generally going to be based on the scale of the scope of that impact, and then from potential impacts, it's really just thinking about you. the only difference there with potential impacts is really factoring in the likelihood of those impacts into that consideration. Um, you know, one thing you also want to keep in mind is that the ESRSs require um, reporting entities to disclose the materiality assessment process mm-hmm. and its outcome okay. in that sustainability statement. So 
you're going to have to include a lot of information for how you kind of came to these conclusions. And there's, and we'll talk a bit more today um, about kind of like some prescribed approaches or suggested approaches that uh, we typically see how people maybe phase the assessment. But in that disclosure, you are going to talk about the methodologies and all these assumptions you made. You know, you're talking about the focus or the extent of the processes inputs um, that were used. And then, you know, if you come up with thresholds, you're going to have to really kind of explain the kind of transparently, like, what are those thresholds? Mm -hmm. Okay, so at what levels does the devil materiality assessment need to be done? Is it only at, you know, the topical ESRS level? For example, we have 12 sector agnostic standards. 10 of which relate to environmental, social, and governmental topics. Um, is this double materiality assessment applied at that level? Uh, it is. So it is going to be applied at the the kind of the topic level, but it doesn't stop there. So there is a level of granularity um, of the matters to be considered, and it does range from, like you said, the topic level. So, for example, you could have like your own workforce is a mm -hmm. sustainability uh, topic that's in those um, kind of 10 sector agnostic standards, but then it could also extend further. So it can then apply to the subtopic level within that own workforce. So an, an example there would be working conditions as a subtopic in there. And then in some cases, it actually could go to the sub subtopic level. And so <laughs> if you drill even further into working conditions, like maybe it's specific to health and safety. Mm -hmm. So that's how you, this application of materiality can actually like I said, it, it can go down multiple levels um, within each of those different ESRSs. So it's, you know, it's it's something that companies are going to have to do, you know, robust diligence around yeah. um, and will take time. And so these three levels of granularity, like if you kind of read through the, you know, the ESRSs put forth by FRAG, um, you know, those are collectively like you'll hear them referred to as sustainability matters, and that could encompass anything within the topic, subtopic or sub subtopic. All right. OK, so what happens after a company identifies a sustainability matter as material? Yeah. So once a matter has been identified as material, uh, the reporting entity refers to the requirements in whatever that respective topical ESRS is to identify the information that needs to be disclosed on. So for example, if a reporting entity concludes that pollution of water is a material sustainability matter, um, it would be required to provide information related to this sustainability matter that follows the requirements of the disclosure requirements outlined in the environmental topical standard on that matter. So in this example, uh, that would fall under kind of ESRS E2, which is okay. the second environmental standard. And within that standard, there are several sections that would apply here. So you have the policy section in E2 and E2-1, you've got the actions and resources in E2-2, the targets in E2-3, the pollution of wa air, water, and soil in E2-4, and then anticipated financial effects of, you know, materially polluted related risks and opportunities in E2-6. So there's several things then within that that come into the purview. And so you have to really navigate those topical standards once you've determined it's a material sustainability matter. Okay, so is it possible to have sustainability matters identified that are not specific to any existing ESRS? 
It is. I would say a lot of companies will start with the existing ESRSs mm-hmm. as a way to guide them, but yep. it is possible. Um, and, and That they didn't think about everything. <laughs> well, it, it's not that. It's just that, and, and we may get into this a little bit, but like there are future standards that are expected to be released. These, this first kind of sector agnostic yep. is the first batch, but there is there are plans to release uh, sector specific, right? So things that only come up to certain um, sectors. And so in the absence of those today, you could still have sustainability matters that once you kind of do your materiality assessment exercise that come up that aren't already prescribed in these sector agnostic Mm -hmm. ones that you should still disclose. And the the ESRS is allude to that and say that, yes, if there is something that um, does not necessarily fall under the purview, you should still disclose any entity specific kind of sustainability matters that are material. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the first set of ESRS that you just alluded to includes over 1,100 data points across all of its potential topical disclosures. Does an entity further assess the materiality of information to inform those sustainability matters? Yes. So determining the materiality of information is a step that follows the materiality assessment. Um, and that help leads to the identification of the material matters to be reported on. Um, and that will be applied at the more granular level of those data points. Okay. So is there a specific criteria an entity uses to assess materiality of information when trying to inform kind of which data points are relevant? There are. So the criteria to determine the materiality of information, it's really based on the relevance and that's outlined in kind of the ESRSs. So what that includes is the significance of the information in relation to the matter it depicts, um, or it could also just relate to its decision usefulness. Um, and that decision usefulness is really for primary users of general purpose financial information or it could also include the users whose interest is on the reporting entity's impact. So, and what I mean by that is it really is just pulling in both the financial materiality focused lens as well as an impact materiality focused lens. In practice, information that is material under kind of the decision usefulness um, perspective is in many cases, if not most, um, is also going to be material under kind of the significance perspective. It doesn't always have to be, but it tends to be. Um, And that kind of just relates back to where we talked about, you know, the intertwining of both like a financial impact and or sorry, financial materiality and impact materialities. Those concepts tend to intertwine. And then the last thing I I would add is that um, there is kind of an appendix list within the ESRSs of all the data points that let's say, assume you had to disclose every single sustainability matter and topic uh, and all the related data points, which, you know, is like over 80 disclosures and 1100 data points. There is a master list if you want kind of an appendix of that. Um, And so there's a there's an assumption in in the reporting for that stuff that if you determine something not to be material you generally have to do like actually include a statement explaining all of the ones that you determined were not material to you as a reporting entity as well wow (laughs) okay so let's talk through the practical process to apply the double materiality assessment does the esrs prescribe an approach or methodology for how this assessment should be done? It doesn't. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, in, you know, in a similar vein, I guess 
you know, that if you think about financial materiality, there really isn't anything that's prescribed as well. It's stuff that's kind of developed over time. Mm-hmm. We've obviously have had a lot longer history of the concept of financial materiality to develop kind of common practices around that. And so uh, I do think we'll see an evolution here, but it doesn't necessarily prescribe this is how you have to do it. Um, and that's because really, you know, they, their thought is they really couldn't come up with a process that would suit all Everybody. types of businesses, yeah. right? And all different types of economic activities mm-hmm. and uh, organizational structures and the way people's value chains operate and look and things like that. So it, it would be way too challenging to have kind of a one size fits all. And so they allow, I guess, good or bad flexibility in how you come, how you approach uh, coming up with your own kind of materiality through an assessment. Okay, so is there an approach you have seen in practice or what are some kind of common steps companies can be expected to navigate as they begin to start an assessment of double materiality? Uh, We've seen some approaches that I guess similar steps people are taking, obviously, as you kind of drill in each of those steps, the way you maybe do certain things are going to vary. And I think that's good, right? Like there needs to be tailoring to your own entity's Mm -hmm. um, specific facts and circumstances. And so there isn't a one size fits all approach. Right. Um, So you need to kind of balance, you know, and I say you like as the reporting entity or the teams responsible for performing this assessment, uh, really need to balance their approach. And what I mean by that is like, you don't want to spend too much time like pulling your CEO into your full <laughs> double materiality process because um, that could potentially be a waste of their time and those resources. But on the same vein, you don't want to like not involve him as a key stakeholder, him right. or her as a key stakeholder. Um, and, you know, the outcome results in maybe people losing trust in the process because we didn't have all the kind of key players there. Um, similarly, like we'll talk about is like stakeholder engagement is huge. You know, if you think about double materiality, it's not just investors and lenders that are important here. You got to think about multi-stakeholder groups, um, you know, your own employees, your customers, uh, broader society, uh, the communities that you're, you know, you operate in mm-hmm. or you, you influence things like that. Um, there's broader stakeholders that are are necessary to get input from, but it doesn't mean always that, Hey, we need to interview thousands of different stakeholders to inform ourselves, but maybe, you know, we can be more strategic there because if you get too many inputs, it maybe could blur some of the results, right. And Mm -hmm. where maybe less significant stakeholders are muddying up some of the results, but then in a similar vein, if you don't involve enough stakeholders, maybe you potentially will leave gaps in sustainability matters you should have identified. Okay, so keeping that in mind, what are some kind of fail-proof steps one could take to do that? Yeah, so we, you know, when we're advising clients, I guess, or maybe when I'm advising, because <laughs> um, there might be people who might like break this into more steps, but I, let's just for simplification, like I think of it through kind of four phases. All right. Uh, so phase one is really understanding the value chain impacts and then who are the relevant stakeholders. And so here it's important that your value chain and stakeholder selection, um, you know, you you spend enough time doing your due diligence around that. You want to make sure you have a holistic group of stakeholders. Um, You know, like I said, limited stakeholder engagement could lead to gaps. Um, Extensive stakeholder engagement, one, could be really expensive and also take a lot of resourcing. So you Mm -hmm. really have to strike a balance into who you want to reach out to. 
Um, and then even when you're thinking about your material sustainability matters, you know, striking the right level of granularity uh, balance is important because you don't want to ensure that some of your topics are too generalized. Like you want to, you know, wouldn't want to just say like, well, climate change is a, is a material sustainability <laughs> matter. Maybe there's specific things within the climate right. change topic that are actually more, more relevant to your stakeholders and more material to your your business or the, or the reporting entity. And so you want to make sure you're drilling in appropriately so that what you ultimately are reporting on is the most meaningful information mm -hmm. to that broader stakeholder group. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's an exercise I think that is, especially for companies that haven't done this yet, it is something that probably will get refined over time. But, you know, it's definitely something you don't want to just do like a quick little, let's spend an hour thinking through this and throw something together and move forward. Like <laughs> this is what we should be, who we yeah. should be engaging and this right. is what we should be asking about. Like spend some, you know, a good amount of time really of time. doing your yep. due diligence there um, and, and thinking about, you know, broader implications of, of doing this exercise. Okay, so that was phase one. What about your kind of next phase two? Yeah, so phase two then is going to be the identification of the actual and potential impacts, risks, and opportunities related to those sustainability matters. So in this step, uh, reporting entities are going to identify what are those material impacts, risks, and opportunities across its like own operations as mm -hmm. well as the you know the value chain, so upstream, downstream value chain, and so. In doing that exercise, what generally happens is you end up with a long kind of inventory mm -hmm. list of all those impacts, risks, and opportunities that you would then take for further assessment and analysis. Um, so there is a list of sustainability matters, like I mentioned, already included in the ESRSs that yep. could help support this process Okay, um, and also help to ensure at least completeness of all the topics, subtopics, and sub-subtopics that the ESRSs identify. Um, but then again, like we talked about earlier, you know, there could be things that are outside that list that are relevant. Maybe they're very sector specific to your type of business, um, that you would also potentially want to include at least until more specific sector sustainability standards are, are put forth by FRAG, um, that also need to be included in that. So in practice, a reporting entity might begin, like I said, starting with that that list that's included in the ESRS. So maybe mm -hmm. they'll just scan that list and compare it to maybe a list they already have. So um, there's a number of companies that may have already been doing voluntary reporting on a number of these kind of topics or issues, mm -hmm. or maybe have been through a some type of version of a double materiality type assessment um, through some of their own voluntary reporting. So that's one way to think about it. Um, you know, looking at it through that lens and kind of just using that as a guide. Uh, but there also are a number of people that will probably be doing this for the very first time and have nothing to start with. Mm -hmm. And so it, the best practice may be to actually just use that list as a complete guide, you know, really right. in a detailed version, like you're going to have to kind of go through that detailed list um, and spend some time there really kind of combing through what makes sense from this, this master list. Um, while also considering, like I said, anything that might be entity specific, that's not included in there that, you know, could be potential one size fits all one size fits all. Okay. Stakeholder engagement is a critical component of that materiality approach that you walk through. So does mm -hmm. the ESRS mandate to actively engage in dialogue with affected stakeholders for the materiality assessment process? Yeah. So they don't mandate specific behavior that you have to do for stakeholder engagement, mm -hmm. but you do have to, you know, you are going to have to disclose your materiality process and its outcomes um, as part of just the requirements there. 
Um, but you know, even though they don't mandate that you have to do stakeholder engagement, I mean, it, almost all entities are going to have to do some type of engagement when, and the way you do it is going to look different from entity to entity. And that's where I, like we talked about the process isn't prescribed because how you might engage stakeholders, depending on who are those key stakeholders for your business might be different than another company or even a competitor. So, um, Stakeholder engagement, though, is very central to the materiality assessment because that is really going to help inform what matters and what you should be reporting on. Uh, so engagement with affected stakeholders is a tool that does help support the reporting in these business processes, as well as the management of those sustainability matters. Stakeholder engagement does help inform then the identification and assessment of those material impacts. Um, and like I said, this is really just going to help streamline ultimately what you need to report on in your sustainability statement. So engagement will be critical. Okay. Should all categories of stakeholders be considered or can a company engage some over others based on priority or significance maybe? Yeah. So definitely you can tailor like how you okay. engage and like maybe certain sustainability matters you engage with certain stakeholders on because it's more relevant for them than others. So it isn't even like a one size fits all that you have to do reach out on all sustainability topics yeah. with this, you know, the broader stakeholder group. You really should be tailoring it. Um, and you can have ones that are considered more key. And there may be ones that are more key stakeholders to specific topics or subtopics mm -hmm. or sub subtopics. And so I, you know, I I, I think what we've seen in, in practice and and what we, you know, as we're, you know, advising clients is that, yeah, that stakeholder engagement will look different and it's not like a one size fits all it's approach all, yeah. to those groups. Okay. So kind of going back to the four phases, let's talk about your phase three. Yeah. So phase three is going to be the assessment and determination of the material impacts, risks, and opportunities that you identified related to those sustainability matters. So here, uh, you're going to place emphasis on setting, you know, appropriate qualitative and quantitative thresholds. So this is where those kind of thresholds come into play, um, because they're going to be necessary to then assess that list, right. Mm -hmm. Of all those impacts, risks, and opportunities. Um, and keep in mind, like whatever thresholds you do come up with, like you are going to have to disclose really how you kind of came up with those and how those were set and what they are. Um, so for impact materiality assessments, uh, a reporting entity, you know, they would take the impacts that are identified in that phase two, uh, and they would apply that criteria that we kind of talked about it earlier as an example, which is around severity, right? Severity of those impacts. And so that's looking at, again, things around like scale, scope, and, and remediable um, character of the impact for those actual negative impacts. And again, not all three of those may be necessary to do, but it's something you have to at least think through. And then again, for the potential negative impacts, the under taking or the reporting entity, um, they're going to have to then just factor in the estimation of the likelihood of that negative impact um, mm -hmm. and then map that to the relevant time horizon. So over the short, medium and long term for actual positive impacts, the criteria are scale and scope for the future positive impacts. And they'll also will have to factor in a likelihood of occurrence here as well. And then for financial materiality kind of assessment there. So around, again, impacts, risks and opportunities. This could be quantitative in nature, but there also could be qualitative, even if you think about just traditional financial materiality, mm -hmm. right? You think about a SAB 99, there's yeah. both qualitative and quantitative yep. factors. Uh, but you're thinking about both quantitative and qualitative kind of thresholds that 
really are going to be derived from the financial effects in terms of like either performance or financial position or cash flows, access to or cost of capital as it relates to the reporting entity there. So a little bit more quantifiable, less abstract in a way, but um, still derived from kind of what those material risks and opportunities might be. Okay. And then after each of those are performed, so again, you're taking all those potential sustainability matters, that list you got, um, running it through an impact assessment, a financial, uh, you know, assessment, then what you do is you, you really are kind of consolidating the results of both of those. So what is the outcome of the impact and financial materiality dimensions? And you want to kind of consider their interaction, um, amongst the kind of the broader sustainability matters that you're, you're navigating. And then that kind of the totality of all that is really what's going to help then drive your sustainability statement and what you report on. All right. So that's, I'm guessing, phase four reporting. It is. Okay. So how frequently should a reporting entity update its sustainability materiality assessment? So the ESRS is more or less, just if you think about the CSRD and the frequency of sustainability reporting, it is annual. So there is an expectation that each kind of reporting period, you would refresh your materiality assessment um, and make sure, you know, past conclusions, if there's new sustainability matters or changes mm-hmm. in certain topics, or maybe a, a mix above the stakeholder group, you want to make sure that your uh, whatever you're reporting on that year is most relevant again to that stakeholder group. Um, so there is a, an expectation that you would kind of reperform that assessment on a recurring basis. So at least annually. Um, there may be situations where, you know, if there's not a lot of significant change, you probably could rely heavily on maybe something that was done in the past, just kind of thinking about some of the robustness that goes into these assessments. They are, they are a long (laughs) process in a lot of cases and do take a lot of time and resources. Um, so maybe barring any, maybe significant changes to the reporting entity, um, or kind of its related operations or structure or things like that, um, you know, you might be able to leverage more or less what's been done previously and maybe Mm -hmm. just want to kind of document and explain why that the reliability of prior assessments are still relevant. That makes sense. Do you have any examples of changed material facts and circumstances? Yeah. So they actually include some of these examples. Uh, FRAG puts some out. So just when you are thinking about whether or not there might be a material change that Mm -hmm. would warrant a more robust kind of refresh of the materiality assessment. So some of the things they allude to is like if you have a significant uh, M&A, so merger and acquisition transaction that leads to a new activity, Mm -hmm. or maybe you're entering into a new sector with your business. Um, or you have a significant change just in your general operations. Other factors could include like a significant change of key suppliers or in the supply chain practices. And, you know, they outline things like global pandemics. Maybe that might have an impact on. Um, Let's hope we don't have another one. No. <laughs> uh, or maybe you have a new material business relationship that could have a severe impact potentially on human rights or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, or if there's just a general shift in kind of broader societal conventions or, um, you know, perspectives on things that might impact characteristics around like severity or things like that. Um, it may warrant that you need to actually then do kind of a a full refresh of your materiality assessment. Okay. Is the concept of double materiality used in other areas of sustainability reporting outside of the CSRD? Yes, it is. So, uh, 
I think I briefly alluded to this. So there are a lot of companies now that do report under GRI, um, which does utilize at least an impact kind of perspective. So an impact assessment mm-hmm. um, that does very much align with the the, the similarities that are used um, in the kind of the ESRS approach. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is benefit for companies that are potentially already reporting uh, under GRI or some component of GRI um, to leverage some of the work that's already been done there. So that is good <laughs> that there there is that. And I would even say that uh, GRI and FRAG, you know, they, they've been very um, active in working together and just understanding the importance of interoperability mm-hmm. um, just with a lot of companies that have been investing a lot of time, energy, and resources into voluntary reporting, um, really creating resources and tools that people can leverage as they're trying to figure out maybe what they're already doing, how that could apply to some of the requirements uh, under the CSRD. And so there is, you know, I think they released not too long ago, actually an interoperability index that helps kind of walk through kind of a compare and contrast if you want, but really kind of shows a lot of the elements where there is leverage uh, between the two different with with the framework and then, you know, the regulation as well. So I think that's that's helpful. But yes, there is this isn't just brand new to to, um, you know, kind of the ESRS, but it is it is going to pull a lot of companies that historically probably haven't that aren't reporting under GRI that are now going to have to go through this thing. Okay, so I know there are future plans to release additional reporting standards for the CSRD, for example, future standards on sector specific topics. So you touched on that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of those are already in development, as you mentioned. How might those, once they're released, impact the materiality assessment in future years? Uh, I mean, in short, (laughs) <laughs> it's likely to create additional topics, yeah. subtopics and sub-subtopics. And sub-subtopics. Uh, that they're going to have to consider. Um, so it's just another layer, right, that they're kind of adding on. Yep. More so that, that will potentially change your evaluation, um, maybe change even the stakeholder groups that you're engaging with um, as you're thinking about potential impacts, risks, and opportunities um, that might be uh, material sustainability matters for you. So it, it just adds another layer to it. Yep. Um, you know, and like I said, in the absence of some of those sector specific things, like, you know, companies are still expected to think about any entity specific matters. And again, just because they're not in maybe that master list that's included in the appendix yeah. of the SRSs, like there could be additional things that would be prudent to still report on and companies would want to report on to really kind of give full transparency to what's material to their stakeholders. So as we've talked about on past podcasts around mandatory and regulated sustainability reporting, assurance is a key component of those requirements. So kind of with that in mind, what do companies need to think about when performing and documenting their process around materiality? Yeah, and and, and that's important. And this is and we and this is true for anything <laughs> that's going to be subject to assurance, right? Um, like documentation is just yep. key, right? So it doesn't require you to have to like document a certain way, um, but there is going to be a certain level of documentation that's expected, whether that's for internal purposes because, uh, you know, your board or your certain audit committees that maybe get pulled into the fold here uh, want to understand the process for how sustainability reporting was constructed and how you determined what was material. 
Uh, but it's also going to be necessary, right, for your assurance provider. Like they're going to want to see. They're going to like yep. the more the more detailed you are, and you know, making kind of those those key judgments and assumptions, and documenting your approach and why you did certain things, and explaining the rationale. Uh, it will save a lot of headache down the road. And so, you know, we always advise people like for sure, like documentation is key. And it's definitely something you want to make sure you're building a robust process around. Okay. So before we wrap, can you share some practical considerations or takeaways you would want our listeners to keep in mind? Yeah. So there's, there's a few, I guess. So one is, you know, just think about like what you're doing today, right? And try to leverage that to the extent you are doing stuff today. So like, again, if you're a more mature sustainability reporter, you're familiar with GRI, um, you know, you're going to note that there's a lot of similarities with mm -hmm. elements of how kind of the ESRS's approach materiality. Um, but it isn't going to just be enough to just say, you know, we've done this under GRI and this is this is fine under the ESRS. Yeah. There's going to still need to be some due diligence done there um, and to ensure that, you know, you've got full alignment with what, what the requirements are under the ESRSs. But again, you also want to make sure that that process is planned, um, you know, thinking about your compliance requirements, that you've got enough time to kind of get through this assessment, um, especially as it relates to like broader stakeholder engagement. Um, and, and involving those that are, are necessary in the conversation and building that time and the resources to get through that. I think next is really understanding the scope and applicability. So for many companies, they probably have, especially multinational, um, that may have very complex organizational structures. They may have different holding company groups spread throughout the EU or things like mm -hmm. that. I think even just figuring out what your reporting strategy might be because mm -hmm. you could have multiple uh, reporting entities on the surface that could be pulled into different reporting obligations under the CSRD. Mm -hmm. And those might be in different jurisdictions within the EU. And so as each jurisdiction transposes this into national law, there could be differences in some of the requirements. Um, and what I mean by that is they wouldn't change any of the baseline requirements that are outlined, but there could be incremental things. And so really trying to develop a robust strategy for how you plan to report is important because once you've identified who are the reporting entities, whether maybe there's one like kind of consolidated or artificial consolidated entity that you're reporting under, like you're going to have to do a materiality assessment for that mm -hmm. entity. And mm -hmm. then if you decide to report in multiple jurisdictions, you know, you're going to have separate materiality assessments for each of those reporting entities. So there, there, there does need to be put some thought into how you, what is the most effective kind of the pros and cons of different reporting strategies. Yep. And there's a number of reasons why you might consolidate and do certain type of reporting versus not. Um, and that's really going to be facts and circumstances based. And then the last thing I would say is just, you know, there, a lot of this is new. Uh, there's a lot of, obviously people are, are looking for more information and looking for guidance and help. Um, FRAG has been pretty good so far about being diligent about trying to get as much interpretive or implementation guidance created and, and readily available mm -hmm. for companies to start using, or at least start reading through and navigating, um, and so, you know, there's always going to be issues that come up operationally, lots of questions as companies start to navigate this. Um, and I do think it's important that, you know, if you find yourself being pulled into, you know, the CSRD, having to report under the ESRSs, 
uh, is just to kind of monitor like some of that that guidance that is being put forth and, and looking forward and be getting familiar with it. And 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 like I said, I think there'll be more to come. There's already been some released, even as at the end of 2023 that they put forth. You can go check some of that out on the FRAGS uh, website. But you know, I, I imagine there's going to be much more. And, and and as practices develop and, and best practices and things like that. Um, we may even see like third party guidance and interpretations being kind of put forth. And and like I said, it'll be an evolution that'll probably take years and years mm-hmm. to really kind of fine tune. But, um, you know, in the interim, definitely kind of be aware of that and watch for that. All right. Well, thanks. I think that's very helpful to our listeners. Well, that wraps us up for today. Thank you for listening to another episode of Accounting Matters. As always, feel free to reach out to Adam or I on LinkedIn. We'll see you next time. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.